to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is the second episode of The Lit Review. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian. That's a Salvadoran tourist. Growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce, ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. If you'd like to support, please follow us on Twitter at Radio Cachimbona, follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio Cachimbona, and Instagram at Radio Cachimbona. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the Lit Review Project. Just to remind you all about what's in store, the Lit Review is a segment where I'll be bringing on women of color guests for book club style chats over wine, or in this case, beer, hence the title, The Lit Review. We'll be bringing you raw and critical analysis of your favorite authors and texts. This week, I'm honored to have Alex Miller with me today to talk about Barracoon, Zora Neale Hurston's posthumously published work capturing the life of Cujo Lewis, 50 years after the transatlantic slave trade had supposedly been made illegal. Before getting into this discussion with Alex, I wanted to give a bit of historical background because I myself was a bit confused about the timeline of this story before reading it. I didn't understand why or how this ship was making its journey after slavery had been made illegal. And so in 1794, Congress passed legislation that outlawed the building of or fitting out of ships for the purposes of importing slaves into the U.S. or for any other kind of trafficking activities. And fines for violating this at first just were monetary fines from $200 to $2,000, but then the penalties increased for importing slaves to include higher fines and potential jail time. By the time that the Civil War broke out, the crime was considered piracy and potential punishment was being hanged. So the response to these legislative acts was actually just to drive slave trade underground, be able to sail quickly and out-navigate the ships, policing the water, looking for illegal ships that were importing slaves. Zornel Hurston wrote the final manuscript years ago, and it was only able to be marketed after she died because Zornel Hurston wrote Cujo Lewis's dialogue in the way that he actually spoke. Anthropologists, writers were not doing at the time, and so it was unpopular by among her publishers, and she was never able to get anybody to agree to publish it. I also just wanted to define the word barracoon. It's a Spanish word, actually, that is was used to describe the structures where people were kept before they were embarked on ships and taken through the Middle Passage. The book begins with a quote from another one of Zora Neale Hurston's works. But the inescapable fact that stuck in my craw was, my people had sold me and the white people had bought me. It impressed upon me the universal nature of greed and glory. land let him stop making slave hunt uh, of other people so he can make his own crops yeah i i like appreciated that so much because well so he was saying you know this isn't mine to give and i think and then kusula points out in the narrative that 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 the dahomey tribe didn't have time to plant their own crops because their economy was based on capturing and selling yeah they were so busy people. slaving they couldn't feed themselves mm-hmm. so they had to tax all the other tribes mm-hmm. and i feel like that's kind of what still happens yeah that everyone's so busy making stuff and stealing stuff and whatever that they don't have time to 
to take care of the basics and they extract that from other people's labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the basis of capitalism, right? So, yeah, straight up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's like important just to not romanticize the past because I think we make the same mistakes if we don't. And like, yeah. Not all skin folk or kin folk. We need to hold, <laughs> we need to hold people accountable for the shit they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to like constantly try to check ourselves. Yes. Like, especially for living and working in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. When Kusula told the story of his community being invaded, he, I think, wasn't it somebody of his tribe that betrayed them? Yes. They told him the secret of the gates. So they yeah. had, like, exiled this guy, and he went to the Dahomey, and he spilt the beans. And so the, when they came to invade the tribe, none of the normal alerts that should have gone up went up. Because they knew the secrets. Mm-hmm. I think it was Franz Fanon that said that colonialism can't happen without cooperation of natives. And that always really deeply depressed me because it's like, like, what could we have avoided if right. there weren't people who were willing to betray their people, their right. community? Well, and then also like, so I highlighted French guns. Oh, yeah. Wait, what, yeah, what so, was that about? Where so they- like, basically, like. <laughs> When the Dahomey invaded Kisula's tribe, like, one of their advantages was, like, they were trading with Europeans and they had guns. Oh. Right? And, like, they talk about the Port- like the Portuguese. Like, they're, they're port-living, oceanfront people who have contact with international trade. They're sophisticated in a way, or we say sophisticated, but what I mean is they have access the to things. Yeah. <laughs> right, that other people wouldn't have and they have a natural leg up when they're confronting other people because they have things like guns Mm -hmm. and i think that's uh, the quote that they started with was so perfect because it's like yeah the universal nature of greed (laughs) yeah it's It's not unique to europe Mm -hmm. it's it exists everywhere Mm -hmm. but that doesn't diminish the impact that colonialism had on the modern world no i just kind of think it's like important like you said for us to like kind of check ourselves because i i mean i really do believe that my joy is like radical and like finding joy is radical but also at the same time there's limits to that you know what i mean like it's like you know if to me joy is having an empire having to exploit people to get there that no longer is radical (laughs) you have to think a lot about the cost of your joy and what it costs that the cost is to other people Mm -hmm. but i was also thinking today about how i so often just think of my existence as being radical yeah that i sometimes think like that could be a sedative right me existing in the spaces i exist in like what else do i have to do yeah right and it's like no like you don't get to stop there the fact that you get to walk into these rooms means you have an obligation but it's so to do hard more. i mean really i mean it's exhausting <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh, that's so hard though because i feel like after everything that your ancestors have gone through don't you think you just deserve to like live a carefree life i do believe in reparations okay yeah <laughs> but you still feel like responsible for bringing positivity or change to the world absolutely yeah yeah i mean i think the privilege that I have, like we were talking about language and how this book almost wasn't published Mm -hmm. because of the way it was written and the fact that it was kind of too Negro. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the fact that I speak common vernacular English and that I can walk into any room with white people and, you know, no one really 
questions my my existence in that space you know like i'm i'm unoffensive and unobtrusive Mm -hmm. right like the fact that i can be there means i have to do something i have to say something for for all of the other people and for all of my family members that frankly cannot Mm -hmm. when you were in corporate you didn't feel like people felt like your presence in the room was something striking no so the thing is with racism like it it can go two major ways like either they just don't want you there or they want to tokenize you okay. and they're really excited you're there. Okay. But they have cherry picked you. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. of your unoffensiveness. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, a lot of the people in really prestigious spaces, especially the black people in these spaces, most of them are mixed. Most of them are immigrants. There's a reason. There's a reason for everything. Yeah. And it's BS. Mm-hmm. But they wanted me in those They're mostly rooms. immigrants? Yeah, if you look at statistics for black people or African Americans in like higher education institutions, most of them are either immigrants or mixed. Wow. Actually, that was my experience at Yale. And my friend Leonard brought this up to me. Yeah, Yale says that it's t- that 10% of its student body is black. But like, which of those are black American and who's like wealthy African students who are, who are you know, children right. he's an, wealthy people? Yeah. He's and then not I was wrong. like, oh, you're right. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, and we, were, we were talking about how you mark those boxes and how race or ethnicity works in the United States and how that's not how our clients are brought up to think about it, but they adapt very quickly to mm-hmm. understand it. There's usually only one box for African American. Yeah. There's not like a black box, an African box. That's There's true. not like yeah, yeah, yeah. a Northern African, <laughs> Sub-Saharan Right, like you look at the Asian boxes, there's like Pacific Islander, like usually there's four or five boxes Mm -hmm. and we all get lumped in together. Mm -hmm. I think the relationship between Black Americans and African immigrants is really interesting and Cujo Lewis brought it out. Yes. Yeah. And it's still kind of the same. Yeah, but then, but then now, but then how do we reconcile that with the fact that what you're saying of the fact that like in these like prestigious elite spaces like actually a lot of the folks who are there are wealthy african immigrants or children of them yeah or wealthy african americans or wealthy mixed african americans okay okay so you're not yeah. saying it's like okay so no but like i'm just saying that like they think they use us as a proxy for diversity and it's not true diversity right right well, like yeah. i'm i come from a mixed family Right, and there's some privilege to that. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at colorism, mm-hmm. when you look at having certain qualities or attributes that like put white people at ease. Yeah. Like I have those qualities and attributes, and I benefit from them. But I'm also aware of that. Yeah. The wealthiness is like what makes you palatable. Well, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't not say like, that. Not like, <laughs> no. not like you, you, but like. No, but yeah, the group. I, I don't know. That's an interesting way of putting of putting it. Because that's the common. Yeah. Factory. I mean, I think about it a lot. So I, I went to Georgetown undergrad, and my mom did as well. But my mom graduated in 1973, and she was in the first class of women in the college. And she yeah, was, was like <laughs> the first class that they were trying to recruit black people. So she was one of 12 black people and one of 18 women. Wow. She laid the groundwork for my she, existence. Was she the only black woman enrolled at the time? There were a couple of others. Okay. But also more than half of the black people that joined with her did not graduate. Oh, wow. Because they did not 
provide the services that they would need mm-hmm. to adapt and assimilate. And they did not go to schools that prepared them for a school like Georgetown. Yeah. On top of that, when she initially got in, they told her she got in, but they couldn't afford her. And that was before the days of full need financing mm-hmm. at schools. So it's like as much as... I believe like, Georgetown couldn't afford a scholarship for one individual, but okay. No. When we look at funding scholarships, it's like schools like Stanford and Harvard could literally, without going into their principal let everyone go to school for free, and yet they still charge us, just based on their endowments. (laughs) Right? Like, none of us should have to go into corporate law to pay off our law debt. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've gone on a crazy tangent. (laughs) (laughs) How do you really feel? Should we go back to the book? Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where were we? <laughs> the war was being fought, but like unbeknownst to them. Yeah, he didn't know. And they were like basically approached by a, uni- a Union soldier and like told they were free and that they had to go somewhere else. And they were like, what? Captain Tim was not there that day. Right. He was To gone. oversee them, like kind of coincidentally. And so yeah. then they were just like, oh. Like, what do we do? Okay. <laughs> right. Well, so now what do we do? Well, then their initial thought was, let's, let's they go They wanted to home. go back, yeah. It says, okay, so we work in slavery for five years and six months for nothing. Now we work for money. We'll get a ship. We'll go back to our country. We think, you know, Captain Mayher and Captain Foster, they ought to take us home. But, like, of, of course not. And then they think, like, well, maybe, maybe Jim or Tim or whatever his name was, maybe for all that work we did, he'll give us a little bit of land. And they go and ask him for land, and he's like... I was good to you guys. Why should I give you free land? He called Kujo a fool. He was like, yeah, surprised. So shook it that they had the audacity to ask them. Yeah, and I just thought that that was wild. That like after all of that, they still like saved up money and bought land from their slavers. Right. I also thought the little tiny story about his marriage was hilarious. Wait, which story? In chapter nine, called Marriage. It's one of the places where I marked still the same, except most of the other ones were like political about like murdering black boys and stuff like that. But it says, one day Kujo says to her, I'd like you to be my wife. I I ain't got nobody. She says, what do you want with me? He says, I want to marry you. And then she says, you think if I'm your wife, you can take care of me? (laughs) And he says, yeah, I can work for you and I'm not going to beat you. And I was like, wow, what? I didn't say no more. We got married one month after we agreed between ourselves. <laughs> and I was like, wow. He really they just sold himself as a husband, didn't really he? really just... Won't beat you. We put the bar so low. <laughs> In a mini shoe. Yeah, are you going to take care of me and not beat me? Boxes tick. Uh, all right, fine. <laughs> But then, like, they develop the, he develops a relationship in the story, and it really is quite sweet. No, yeah, their marriage was really sweet. And I, like, um, I made a note when he talks about how he was, like, really confused about a marriage license, because that wasn't something that was required in Nigeria. And so he, it was really foreign to him, and it had to be explained to him about how his marriage wasn't valid until he did that. They were living in sin. Yeah. And then he, (laughs) 
But he says that he he didn't love his wife more with the license, that he loved her the same the whole time. Yeah. Like, yes, no. marriage is a legal construct. Yes, Cujo. <laughs> yeah, no, they were really, really sweet. He said she a good woman and I love her all the time. Yeah. And then just also for someone that went through so much, he has... I don't know, because the, the last chapter of the book is titled Alone. And it's just like... Such a little heartbreaker. Right, it goes over the death of his last child. Mm. And and I think his wife's death. Oh, yeah. Such a focus on positivity and on forgiveness that I thought was really impressive when talking about the man who killed his son, the deputy sheriff, who was apparently a pastor as well. And he says, you know... I, I tried to forgive him, but, you know, I think now that he's got religion, he ought to come and let me know that his heart has changed and beg me for forgiveness. Yeah. Why do, like, we always expect a little bit better out of people, and I think that there's something very sweet about how much he hopes and expects from, from people. That's true, because even I'm more jaded than that, because I was, I was just like, I read that and I was like, oh, that's sad. It's never going to get an apology. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he's so sweet and hopeful. Oh, it's so patronizing. God. No, I think it's good. You're not as jaded as I am. Maybe. humanity. I just woke up in a good mood and I finished the book. Oh, I liked, I thought the, I thought like the very last paragraph was powerful though. When she says, I'm not sure that he does not fear death. I'm sure that he does not fear death. Right. In spite of his long Christian fellowship, he is too deeply a pagan to fear death. But he is full of trembling awe before the altar of the past. Yeah. And I think that kind of gets back to our discussion of his form of Christianity mm-hmm. and how that ties into his past. And also how he manages to be positive, regardless of all of the, the trauma and struggle he's been through. Mm-hmm. That he, he's able to remember with a certain type of joy. Yeah. And there's a certain joy in the type of storytelling that he's doing. And I think that she does a really good job of emphasizing that this is his story and the way that he is telling it. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think for me, the fact that she felt like he's too deeply pagan to fear death made me feel like he like the beauty of Cujo is that he did he like preserved his core self yeah that he like maintained his identity somehow through all of it exactly yeah it does give one a bit of hope yeah yeah I think so because and I think like that's why this story is so important because I think if you don't tell the narratives of People who were formerly enslaved from their perspective, patronizing from the white perspective. All the savior complex, like yes. Amistad, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, we didn't mention the white benefactor. Oh, we did not. Yeah, we forgot about that. There was some, you know, white lady in New York that funded the entire book. And there's this crazy bit of script about why she thought it was so important to do this work. Which I just think, like, still so true today and kind of sums up a lot of kind of aid work or, you know, just like positive, whatever. (laughs) It says, this woman believed it her duty to protect 
black stories from those whites who, having no more interesting things to investigate among themselves, were grabbing in every direction material that by right belongs entirely to, to another race. And it's, and it's, I don't know how I feel about that because it's like, this text is so important. Wait, she, she's not wrong, yeah. but like, who is she to say that? And why is she the self-appointed guardian? Right. <laughs> but if she wanted to be my benefactor. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd take the money. <laughs> yeah. No, I, wish, I, I wish we could interview Zora Neale Hurston and ask her about that. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, how yeah. do you feel about this form of sponsorship? Yeah. Do you think it impacted your work? Yeah. Like, right. What was your relationship like with her? Yeah. Things we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs>